From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. A story I always like to tell, and my mother's going to kill me for this, but my mother was a terrible cook when I was growing up. Everything that she made was, uh, was burned. She said she liked it that way. This week on our show, we have an audio postcard from an expat living in Japan attending a Thanksgiving-like feast. We hear about a basic cookbook from a bygone era and a fun baking project using a potentially hazardous ingredient. Plus, a report about big ag's influence at public universities from Harvest Public Media. That's all just ahead, so stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. It's common these days to see big corporate names plastered across university campuses, especially within agriculture departments. Whether it's a building, an endowed teaching job, or a research center, corporations and public universities are increasingly cozy. Reporting by Harvest Public Media and Investigate Midwest reveals just how much money has gone to Midwestern universities and how that money can put schools in sticky situations. To kick off the series, Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin talks with Sky Chatty and Jonathan Hedinger from Investigate Midwest. So first, let's lay out our top findings here. Sky, how much money have corporations given to Midwest schools over the past 10 years? At least $170 million, Dana. Um, But that's very likely an undercount because we were only able to obtain data from four public universities. Uh, Some states have public records laws that shield donor information. But out of these four, um, the most of the money went to the University of Illinois at $100 million from corporations. Uh, second place was Iowa State University with $50 million. This series focuses in part on the potentially thorny situations universities put themselves in when they accept these corporate gifts. Jonathan, you looked at a specific case from 2018 involving the University of Illinois and Monsanto. What happened there? Well, Dana, for years, the University of Illinois courted Monsanto. The company gave more than $3 million to the university to sponsor research and gifts in other areas. So in 2018, when a weed killer called dicamba was causing widespread damage to crops, and a University of Illinois professor spoke up about the damage, one top Monsanto official felt he could speak up about it. Rob Fraley, the chief technology officer, contacted the agriculture dean, calling the professor biased and prone to exaggeration. Um, But the dean defended the professor, but it was still an awkward moment for the university with one of their biggest donors. Yeah, I want to acknowledge, too, that sometimes corporate influence on universities isn't quite that obvious. Um, Here's a clip from someone we talked to for the series. This is Gabrielle McNally with American Farmland Trust corporate influence has that kind of, it's this much more tacit sort of control over the research agenda. And so it's a way for people to say like, well, they're not controlling us. They're not like, we're not, they're, they're not our puppet masters, but it's much more sort of in a certain way. I think like it's so in the water that you're like, yeah, but, but we only research the crops that they're heavily investing in. Sky, why do universities need this money? Why not avoid putting themselves in these sticky situations? 
Federal and state funding to public universities has stagnated in the past couple decades. Um, and at the same time, uh, the federal government used to be the largest funder of R&D in agriculture. The private sector has now taken over as that dominant funder. Um, and what we heard when we talked to university officials was that courting this money is a way for universities to remain relevant. Here is Daniel Robeson, the dean of the Agricultural College at Iowa State University. It's funding that helps keep us relevant with respect to pragmatic needs that are on the ground. And there are many, many organizations, companies that are doing fundamental research as well. And so our ability to work with them and their interest in working with us speaks to, I speak, think it speaks largely to our relevancy, uh, frankly, to the industry that helps to support the production of food. Other school officials we've talked to have said that this money helps universities continue to do the kind of research they need to do in perpetuity. Yeah, we heard that from Bruce Sherrick. He's a professor of farmland economics at the University of Illinois and heads a research center that was funded by the corporate investment giant TIAA. Every university should look for the ability to build, in my opinion, freestanding, um, unrestricted gifts to fund things that they want to do on a permanent basis. And you can hear more about that TIAA Farmland Research Center later in our Big Ag U series. That was Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin talking with Sky Chatty and Jonathan Hedinger about their series, Big Ag U, which looks at corporate influence at public universities across the Midwest. We'll share more from the series in an upcoming episode of Earth Eats. How did you learn to cook? Did you learn to cook? Not all of us know how to cook. Some of us can boil spaghetti, fry an egg, warm up food in the microwave, and that's about the extent of it. Some of us were taught by parents or grandparents, home economics classes, YouTube, cooking shows, and some of us even have formal training. Last fall, a friend of mine told me about a conversation she was privy to at a meeting in Lawrence County, Indiana. It's in Southern Indiana. They were talking about home cooking and how people learn to cook. I think the meeting, uh, we're trying to get people back to um, realizing that's how they, that's what they need to do is be cooking at home and that it's not that hard, it can be simple, and trying to figure out ways to reach people. That's Michelle Porter resident in Lawrence County all my life, and right now I'm a Bono Township trustee. And you say you've lived there your whole life? When I got married, uh, be 48 years ago, we lived out at Orange County, Leap Sick, for two years, and then we moved back. So I've always lived in, except for those two years, always lived in Bono Township. So you've been realizing maybe some of the people in your township aren't, uh, are, are needing those cooking skills, or... No, I think IU actually called this meeting, and they just invited all the trustees, and I went. Um, actually, most of the people in Bono Township actually are country folk, and they do cook. <laughs> okay. So, you know. And in that conversation, Michelle mentioned a cookbook. When I got married, uh, it would be 48 years ago next month, Lee Hamilton sent me this. It's called A Family Fair, A Guide to Good Nutrition Cookbook, and it has just real simple recipes in it that tells you how to make gravy how to make mashed potatoes, and it's stuff just real simple that most cookbooks don't have in them because it's just the simple stuff. Okay, so some of the basics that... Basics. 
Other yes. cookbooks might assume you already know how to make gravy, so they might not yeah. put a recipe in there or mashed potatoes. But you're right. saying this has all those basics. Yeah, it has your basics. When I heard about this cookbook, that she got it in the mail as a wedding gift from her congressman, I wanted to talk to her. My friend Julia put us in touch. And so when you got this cookbook, did you already know how to cook? Not a lot. I used it a lot when I got it, when I first got it. Yeah. No, I didn't know. My mom cooked all the time, and we had to do the dishes. But she didn't really. uh, We lived on a farm, and she was out with the pigs, and she was out on the tractor. And so when she came in, she cooked it, but we had to do the dishes. So she didn't really take the time to teach us a lot about cooking. We did the dishes. So you weren't invited in to, to help out? Not, not, help out. <laughs> no, peel potatoes, but not really on the cooking part, yeah. Yeah. So it's a book that you ended up using a lot. Oh, I did. Yes, I did. I used it a lot. Did you, how did you, what did you think when you first got it in the mail? I don't really remember. <laughs> like, 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 were you surprised? Did you think it was yeah. a strange thing for your congressman to send you? Yes. Yes. I'm sure I did think that because, that, you know, I never dreamed about him sending me a free cookbook. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And you think they just sent it out to every every married couple? I don't know. Uh, one of my friends that's never been married, uh, it's five years older than me, she said she got one. But now I, I asked on Facebook the other day if anyone else, you know, had got one and nobody else answered me. So I don't know how they picked who got them. I really don't. Well, what are some of the recipes that you've tried? Uh, Probably like the mashed potatoes and just how to do gravy and a lot of your basic stuff. I used it a lot to know how long to cook meat. Mm -hmm. There's tables in there for how long to cook meat to know when it's done. Mm -hmm. So I used it a lot for that. You can see it's pretty getting pretty ratty. But uh, yeah, I used it a lot when I got married. See, there's a biscuits recipe. So... Just a lot of the basic stuff. Now, are you the kind of person who will make notes in your cookbooks and your recipes and stuff about like, oh, you know? I will, but you know, I I didn't in this, so I guess I didn't tweak it any. Uh-huh. I probably wasn't as comfortable tweaking then as I am now. Yeah. So this was kind of something you you relied on when you were younger. And yes. then as you got more comfortable, maybe you had some other yeah. cookbooks. or Yeah, and I didn't use it so much. But I did when I first got it. I used it a lot. So, yeah, I see it's got, um, it doesn't just have recipes. It starts with a, a whole section on nutrition. Yes. So there's a guide to, to good nutrition. And then serving by serving, foods provide for daily needs. And then it's got a whole breakdown of, like, different foods you could eat, like milk, and then how much protein, how much calcium, how much of these different vitamins. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. And then some stuff about servings. And then shopping, smart buying, okay. It's really pretty interesting. Different types of poultry, vegetables, and then a whole thing about storing food. This is great. Yeah, and that was helpful, too, on the storing food. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So it just gives you some ideas for what needs to be refrigerated, what can be held at room temperature. Mm Mm-hmm. Store in a cool room away from bright light. That's your onions, your potatoes, your rutabaga, and your squash and sweet potatoes. Okay. <laughs> Some substitutions. A whole yeah, thing and that's, about... that's very helpful when you don't carry a lot of stuff, you know. 
So in place of double acting baking powder, you could use two teaspoons of quick acting baking powder plus a quarter teaspoon of baking soda plus sour milk or buttermilk. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I probably used that one where you can add vinegar to the milk and make it sour for persimmon pudding. I probably used that as much as anything. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So for buttermilk, you can add lemon juice or uh, vinegar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've used that a lot. Now, is the, um, okay, so then there's a whole thing about just kind of meal planning, it looks like, some different ideas for main dishes. Oh, okay, now we're getting into the recipes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So did you say there's a persimmon pudding in here? I don't know if there is or, I don't think there is, but I just, I always looked in there to find out when I made my persimmon pudding. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, and then there's a whole section at the end of ways to use leftovers. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then some cooking terms, bake, barbecue-based, marinade, parboiled. That's great. It's just kind of pretty neat overall. Our friend Julia got in touch with Lee Hamilton's office to ask about Michelle's wedding gift from the 70s. And surprisingly, they sent Julia a cookbook. I showed it to Michelle. Oh, and that's not anything like what I have. No. Nothing at all. This one is called Nancy Hamilton's Indiana Family Cookbook. And so hers, it's just different recipes, and then she has a little note at the end of all of them, like baked spaghetti. Lee's mother made this, is her little note at the end. Yeah, this is just like little almost recipe cards, and they're really short. Dump cake. Chocolate lover's dream. <laughs> oh, I love dump cakes. Yeah. What do you consider to be a dump cake? When you just dump it in there. Well, I, I started out seeing uh, Paula Deans, and she always started out with um, like a can of crushed pineapple, and then your pie filling, and then your dry cake mix, and then a stick and a half of butter on the top. Huh. The pineapple's on the bottom? Uh-huh. And then you flip it over? No? No. Oh, okay. Interesting. No. Well, this one includes a box of German chocolate cake mix. Oh. <laughs> so that, that cuts some corners there. And then it's got some... See, your dry cake pudding. mix makes your crumble for the top. When you, you can melt your butter, and when you melt your butter and spread it over your dry cake mix, that makes like a crumble topping mm. for whatever you put under it. Oh, I do a caramel apple one, too, that's good. Take two cans of apple pie filling and drizzle caramel on it, and then put a yellow cake mix and melted butter. And then if you want two pecans, it's pretty good on that, too. Oh, okay. That's really easy. And so you're not really mixing up the, the No, cake you don't mix. make it up. You just um, put some butter, mix it with some butter, or put mm -hmm. butter on top of just it. Just melt butter and drizzle it over the top, yeah. Paula Dean's the first one I ever heard of doing it. They're really good. They're really easy. You just dump it in there. That's why it's called a dump cake. Yeah. Yeah. So you just dump it in the pan. Like yeah. you're not in your nine and a half by eleven. Yeah. So you don't even have to use a bowl. Don't have to dirty no. up a bowl. No. Okay, so this the family fair, a guide to good nutrition that you received mm -hmm. when you got married. And now when was this? It's nineteen seventy one. Okay. This comes from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yes. And it's a Home and Garden Bulletin Number 1. It was revised in May of 1970, mm -hmm. and it's from Washington, D.C. Yes. Okay, so this came to you maybe through Lee Hamilton, but it's from, it's from D.C. Yes. 
Okay, well that makes a little more sense of why when Julia got in touch, they mentioned this. Uh-huh. Or they sent her this because they probably thought it was the Hamilton cookbook that she mm -hmm. was talking about. So can you think of any any dishes in here that you made more than once or that you kind of was a go-to for you? You said mashed potatoes. Well, uh, the macaroni and cheese. I'll have to admit I tried the cherry pie uh, after we got married and burn it. That wasn't too good of a deal. <laughs> um it's been so long since I've used it, I don't really remember. See, there's a boiling guide for fresh vegetables, so you'll know when they're done. Mm-hmm. French toast. My mom never made French toast, so I did learn how to make French toast out of this. Yeah, see, there's a roasting guide in here. Okay. So it tells you how long to roast stuff, and it may be on the page before, too. And that way you know how long to cook meat that it's done. So even no, if you don't have a thermometer to find right. out. My mom never had a thermometer to... The roast meat, she always just, yeah. So do you have kids? I have a daughter. And does she like to cook? She does, and she's a very good cook. Yeah. Um, have you have you shown her this cookbook? I actually gave that to her, and she used it for a while, and then she gave it back after she, she's more internet. You know, she'll yeah. look stuff up on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. But, so she gave it back to you? Yeah. <laughs> Do yeah. you think she used it at all for any? Yeah, dogs? I think she used it some. And are there any recipes that you would maybe pass down to her or even just instructions that you got from this? Mm, probably I've already done that. Um, now when I make gravy, my mother-in-law taught me how to make gravy. But my daughter, Natasha, she follows a recipe to make gravy. And she makes good gravy, but I just dump it in there. Okay, so tell me <laughs> how you make gravy. I think one of the main things is is to use a fork or a, a whisk. You can't use a spoon. Okay. And so just however much butter, or I always like bacon grease, you have in the skillet, my sprinkle flour in it until it's, I just kind of eyeball it. Uh-huh. And then salt and pepper it and stir it till it's got all of your butter or your bacon grease absorbed. Uh -huh. And then I just pour milk in it and just keep stirring till it gets thick. Okay. And do you have to pour it slowly? Or no, just... I just dump it in there. Okay. <laughs> and then you, you're whisking it with your fork or your whisk uh -huh. until it thickens yeah. up. Yep. Now, my mom always browned it. You know, she always waited till the flour got brown, but I don't do that. I just stir it up. And is that just a preference if you like that, that uh, nutty brown flavor or not? I think maybe I just don't want to wait as long. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much, Michelle. Well, thank you for having me. That was Michelle Porter talking about a cookbook she received as a wedding gift in 1971 from then-Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton. From my limited research since this conversation, it seems that the booklet was frequently distributed from the offices of U.S. Senators and Representatives, not just Lee Hamilton, from the 1950s through at least the 1970s. In an eBay search, I came across a letter enclosed in one of the copies from a congressman in the state of Washington, saying he knew the recipient was a bride-to-be based on a newspaper announcement about a marriage license application. He went on to say that he had a limited number of these booklets to give away from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So perhaps not all married women received them, just a select few. You can see an image of that letter on our website, eartheats.org. My mom's basic cookbook was a Betty Crocker one with a red and white hardcover, 
and it was a three-ring binder type. I can remember studying that cookie section very carefully as a child. And I have a version of that one that I still occasionally reference. The cookbook I started out with as an adult was the Moosewood Cookbook by Molly Katzen. Perfect for the 20-something vegetarian activist. I made my first loaf of bread from that book. Homemade pasta, Hungarian mushroom soup, hummus. It was a great start. Now my go-to basic cookbook is Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything. It usually lives up to its name. I'd love to hear from you. What's your reference cookbook? Joy of Cooking? Is it a Google search? Epicurious? Also, how did you learn to cook? From whom did you learn to cook? Are you still learning to cook? Drop me an email, eartheats at gmail.com, or send us a message through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at eartheats. After a short break, we'll hear from a guy named Rocky who learned how not to cook from his mom. Stay with us. Thanksgiving is approaching, and like last year, the holiday might look a bit different for many of us who celebrate. After all, the pandemic isn't over, and some of us may choose to stay home or scale back again this year. Well, in honor of the weirdness of the past two years, we have a story from our friend David Gan in Saitama, Japan. You might remember him from his office cooking session on a previous episode, or if you listen to the radio locally, you might have heard an Earth Eats promotion with his voice. David is speaking with his friend Rocky, another expat living in Japan, about an annual Thanksgiving dinner he puts together. This was recorded in 2019 when it was safe to gather in small spaces, cooking and talking together without face masks. This is David Gann, the office cooker you've heard in a previous episode. I'm today at the home of Rocky Burton in Nishin City, Saitama. So we've been doing this about once a year now. I was over here one year ago for the last uh, dinner that Rocky prepared. And I'm going to ask you a few questions about your history in cooking. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, so uh, first of all, how long have you been in Japan? Uh, it's been about seven and a half, going on eight years now. And how did you first get interested in cooking? Were you interested in cooking back in the States? Oh, absolutely. I've been um, cooking for as, well, about as long as I can remember. Um, a story I always like to tell, and my mother's going to kill me for this, but I always like to say that my mother was a terrible cook when I was growing up. Uh, everything that she made was, uh, was burned. She said she liked it that way. She, she cooked all of her hamburger black. She liked it burned. All of her chicken black. She said she liked it burned, and so eventually I just had to learn to do it for myself. So um, I also had a really good home ec teacher in high school, Mrs. Uh, Joanne Robbins. I took her classes a couple of times, and we practiced making a whole lot of pastries and uh, a couple of 
more healthy meals. That's basically where it all came from. All right, well, how many of these uh, Thanksgiving dinners have you had in the past? I think this is my third or fourth time around. The first couple of times were a little bit easier, I think. They were much smaller affairs, just at maximum it was like six or seven people. But starting from last year, we started to have larger groups. We had like 15 or 20 last year. You've got a really incredible uh, array of uh, dishes prepared for today, and we're going to look at the, the list. Correction. I have a huge list of dishes planned. What is going to be prepared is going to be a fraction of that. Even if it's a fraction, it's amazing, Rocky. You just cannot get food like this um, in Japan very easily. And that brings me to my next question. How do you get all these materials? And in the beginning, did, what, what kind of uh, difficulties did you have in procuring these, these items? The beginning was easier. They were much smaller dishes and um, more simple items. Um, for the, the bigger items, the turkey, the stuffing, the gravy, you have to go out to Hiroo area, out in Tokyo. That's where most of the wealthy foreign executives live, I suppose you could put it. It's, uh, they got international markets out there, so that's the only place where I can really find any turkey. Unless I want to go out to a Costco and get an entire whole bird, which I cannot cook in my small setting. But the most difficult thing for me to find is uh, baking items. Baking items. Um, like what? Powdered sugar is impossible to find. Powdered sugar? Powdered sugar. Wow. Um, you can find them at uh, the Caldi, the small-time international store. Sure. But those are only in really small packages of like 75 grams or so. But um, I had to send out for larger packages. I got this one package here. I, it looks like uh, 500 grams. So what I did, I hopped on Amazon, ordered like four or five bags of those. And I've been keeping those for as long as I can. Uh, sometimes you have to stretch your ingredients and uh, between you and me keep them a little bit past their expiration date. <laughs> well, well how about this uh, cranberry sauce you're making over here this looks like something that might be difficult to find in a store you can find canned cranberry sauce and as a matter of fact it reminds me I have one can left but um, the, cran the canned cranberry sauce is to me only a garnish uh, the stuff you get in the can the jellied stuff that is traditionally put on a plate on the center of the kitchen table and then picked at. People put it on their plates and then they throw it away. That's how you eat the canned cranberry <laughs> sauce. What a waste. No, that's what it's used for. <laughs> it's just for coloring on your plate. But the real cranberry sauce, you have to make it at home. You have to cook it yourself. Now, you cannot find cranberries in Japan anywhere except for at Costco. And even then, there's a small window of time of like maybe two, maybe three weeks when it's available seasonally. And so I uh, will occasionally swing by the Costco after work on Fridays and um, see if they've got any in stock around about end of October, beginning of November or so. I'm looking at the list of the various things, including eggnog you've got on here. I'll just go down the list and you please uh, just 
rap a little bit about some of the various things you've got going. And I can tell you what I, what I have made, what I am going to make, what I'm abandoning. Okay. First of all, we have deviled eggs. It's in the process. I'm making those. Um, I need to get the eggs in the pots within the next couple of minutes if we're going to have any. Okay. The cheese ball flavor to be announced. What is going to be the flavor this time? Uh, that is going to be a chocolate chip cheese ball. Wow. Chocolate chips, another thing you really can't find in, in supermarkets regularly. So what I do is I just go out and get a bunch of chocolate bars for really cheap and just chop them up or uh, hammer them and do what I can with them. Pumpkin hummus. Now this does sound interesting. Pumpkin hummus is actually pretty easy. You can find pureed pumpkin sauce at the Caldi, that supermarket that I told you about. Garlic whipped mashed potatoes and gravy. Man, that sounds great. Those are done. The mashed potatoes are done. They're on the table now. Gravy will be forthcoming after just a couple of minutes. That seems like a, uh, it's a lower tier item. It's easier to get around to. That takes like, shoot, 10 minutes. Gravy's not really a very common thing in Japan, is it? Well, I mean, not the brown gravy, not the turkey gravy that uh, we're most familiar with. But um, you can find ingredients at a various number of places. I went up to the international market in Hiro, uh, where I got my turkey from. And I got a couple of packages of the sim simple uh, short stuff. But I decided this year, just go for a large canister. I got a giant canister of about uh, 240 grams of brown gravy mix. And that's going to be the easiest way to get it all together. I mean, I'd love to make my gravy from scratch using just drippings from uh, a, a roasted turkey breast or a whole bird if I could. But I mean, let's be honest, I got enough work. It, it looks like it. Uh, this next one is a traditional dish that everyone in America loves, macaroni and cheese. I was a little surprised to see it on here because it's such a simple and basic one, but I imagine you do something special with it, don't you? Well, this one's going to be baked. It'll be a baked macaroni and cheese if the oven will be free in time. I have easily uh, five or ten baked items that are on my list to get to before I get to the mac and cheese, but... Uh, if I can free up the space, just bake it up, cover it with some breadcrumbs or something like that. Yeah, that'll make it a little bit special. Well, we're moving on to the entrees now. And I see you've got pumpkin and mushroom risotto. Mmm. That's what I'm working on right now. I'm chopping up the pumpkin and uh, tossing a little bit of sage. This is something that I used to make um, when I took a short time as a vegan diet. So this one can be made vegan today. Uh, we don't have any vegan guests, so that saves me a bit of effort. So I'll just toss in some chicken stock. Moving on to dessert, you're making cookies. What kind of cookies are you making? I got some chocolate chip uh, cookie dough that's been in the fridge overnight. So all those flavors should be married by now. And um, with whatever time we have left with the oven, because it's only a small single rack oven, I'll make some gingerbread and hopefully some peanut butter. Finally on the list that you put on your website, you've got boozy brownies. Boozy brownies. I love me some boozy brownies. What kind of booze are you putting in those brownies? First you make the brownies based on the mix or from scratch, and then you just pour on about a quarter cup of bourbon. That should steam and dry up after just a moment. It'll be absorbed into the brownie itself. 
and then I'll cover it up with a little bit of rum and I think cream cheese frosting. Wow, I can't wait. I'm I'm more about the I'm more about the drink today. I'm all about the, the apple cider that Rocky made, uh, spiked with some uh, rum, and the eggnog, which I think he probably prepared two days before, because uh, last year when he made this, uh, there was a real strong ethanol flavor, but today it's it's, it's very uh, <laughs> it's very smooth, so I've been imbibing in the drink more than I have the food. So my kudos to Rocky for making uh, making these wonderful drinks today. <laughs> I don't think he's paying attention. Because <laughs> it's just a reminder of what you have that are non-material goods. Um, and, and for me, you know, friendship is much more important. Yeah, to me, like Rocky creates a space where you can enjoy something festive, which um, in Japan is really unusual. For kind of us expats out here that you know, don't maybe have many opportunities to interact with family, um, it's, it really means a lot. Well, I think we should all say cheers and thanks to Rocky and Rin. Cheers! cheers. And, and if you have friends who cook, you should look after them. なんかあんまり日本でこういうもの食べる機会がないからすごくなんか珍しくってでそれがこう手作りだからなんかすごい余計。The favorite has definitely got to be the turkey. No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, the, the, I think um, everything has gone down really well, as we can see here, where there's no, no food left. Well, it's a lot of food left, but yeah, it's all gone down very well. The risotto was very good, and the guacamole chicken breast was very good, and the bread was very, very, very good. Yeah, but yeah, overall fantastic. And again, thanks to Rocky and Rin for putting this together. Yeah. I think I heard cranberry sauce, macaroni and cheese, something with pumpkin in it. So yeah, a nod to a traditional Thanksgiving meal. Thanks so much to David Gann for that audio postcard from Saitama Prefecture in Japan. This time of year, those of us with holiday baking traditions are kicking into gear, making lists of what to bake and ingredients to gather. While cookies, candies, and sweetbreads might be typical winter holiday fare, German-style soft pretzels might be a welcome departure. Eric Schedler of Muddy Fork Bakery learned pretzel making informally at a village bakery in southern Germany when he was 20 years old. And he's generously sharing his secrets with us this week. So today we are going to make German-style soft pretzels, and by German-style, I mean dipped in real lye solution. It's not too, not too strong. The typical way to do it is to, dip, to put it in a 4% lye solution. So it's actually a lot less caustic than what you would make if you're making soap. You can stick your fingers in it and they don't burn off immediately, <laughs> although I do suggest wearing gloves, especially if you have any cuts at all on your fingers. They will burn immediately in the lye. So what is lye? Sodium hydroxide. That um, a lye solution is very basic, and it reacts uh, with the dough to change the chemistry in the outer layer of the dough. And then when it bakes, the lye dissipates 
but it causes a much higher amount of caramelization reactions uh, in the surface of the dough as it bakes. And that gives it that characteristic deep brown, reddish brown color and a certain flavor that you just associate with pretzels. So if you don't happen to have lye sitting around in your pantry, you can use like a baking soda solution. Is that what most people do? You can do that. I've done it. Um, People often recommend a boiling baking soda solution, although I will warn you that it's hard to keep a pretzel in its shape when you put it in boiling water. And that may work better for making rolls than actual pretzels. But if you want to take the plunge or if you already make soap or want to make some soap, you can buy a little bottle of lye beads and make yourself a little solution. Pretzel dough is almost a straight bread dough with the one addition of a little bit of fat in the dough. Uh, Most people use butter. Um, You can use lard. Actually, the pretzels that we sell in our bakery, we use lard because we wanted to try to use as many local ingredients as we could and you can buy lard locally and you can't, if you're a bakery, you can't legally buy butter locally because all the butter that's available is raw milk butter. All right, uh, so to make the pretzels, we're gonna measure out the water and mix in the yeast and let the yeast dissolve. This recipe is gonna make uh, six four ounce pretzels. So we need 255 grams of water and we need two grams of yeast. So we're going to use half a teaspoon of yeast. It's hard to measure a gram or two, even on a really good scale. And I'm speeding it along with the whisk a little bit. My next ingredient is the butter, and I don't want the fat to hit the undissolved yeast, because then the yeast could just get frozen in the butter and not hydrate. All right, here's our melted butter. We measured out 35 grams of butter earlier and stuck it in the oven to melt. Then we just need to add the flour and the salt. And when I have oil or butter or any kind of floating fat in the dough, I try to uh, move the water as I'm adding the flour so that I don't get flour to only absorb fat. I want to get the flour into the water. The best way to do this is to take a different bowl and measure the flour out. Then we can just dump it in quickly and stir it as we dump in the flour. So we want 425 grams of flour. This is an all-purpose flour. You don't want, for pretzels, to use a flour that has too much protein or too high of a gluten content in it because it will make the pretzels hard to stretch. We want eight and a half grams of salt, which is going to be slightly less than two teaspoons. We have our wet measured out, we have our dry measured out, and with the spoon I'm just gonna stir this butter water mixture while I add the flour. Pretzel dough is also a pretty stiff dough, and that's kind of important because you have to be able to work with it to roll it out, shape it into pretzels. And I believe the reason for the fat in it, and you wouldn't want to do this with oil. You'd want to use butter, lard, or shortening, uh, is that after you form the pretzels, you chill them, and that makes them firmer and easier to handle while you're dipping them in the lye and getting them into the oven without destroying them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, I've done what I could with the spoon, so I'm going to use my hands a little bit. 
to knead this dough until it gets more smooth and evenly incorporated. And I'm doing that by tugging at the dough at the edge of the bowl and pressing it down into the middle, giving that bowl about a quarter turn and repeating that motion over and over again. Just in the bowl, the mess is all contained in the bowl, except for your fingers. And we'll do this for a few minutes until everything is evenly incorporated. Okay, I'm about done mixing here. The dough is looking smoother, although it's still kind of raggedy at this point. It gets really smooth when it sits and rests. But um, this pretzel dough is, is, like I said, it's pretty stiff. So everything comes clean off the bowl when you're mixing it up. And there we have it. I'm gonna set it to rest. The dough's gonna rest covered at room temperature for a few hours, but you'll still need to tend to it. Oh, you know what that means it's time to do? Time to fold our dough. If you have a kitchen timer going, then you won't forget every 30 to 60 minutes to fold your dough. And this pretzel dough usually should get three folds, not more than that, or you'll make it too strong and it'll be harder to roll out your pretzels. So you should notice the dough getting smoother every time you do a fold. And we're doing that same motion we use for mixing where I'm pulling the dough from the outside edge into the middle and I'm gonna go once around the bowl and then cover it back up, set my timer. For pretzels, I'll set the timer for 60 minutes. After three hours, it's had three folds and it's ready to cut up into pretzels. So just to recap, we mix the dough, knead it until it's smooth, let it rest for three hours, folding it once each hour. Then the dough is ready to be divided and shaped into pretzels. Our pretzel dough has been fermenting away for a few hours and we're turning that dough out onto the table and we're gonna cut our dough into four ounce pieces for pretzels. You want to flatten your dough. It will make it easier to start to roll out that big long pretzel. So I've got a little bit of flour, rolling pin, and another tool which is called a bench knife or a bench scraper or a dough knife. It's a little rectangle of metal with a handle on it. Okay, just enough flour to make it not stick, but not too much. And you can see how nice and smooth the dough gets. So I'm measuring them to 120 grams, just over four ounces each. You want to roll your pretzel like three feet long. So the dough doesn't usually want to stretch that far all at once. So we're going to roll it in two phases. We're going to roll up that rectangle into a strand. And I easily get it around 16, 18 inches long. So the motion that I'm doing is I'm taking each piece which should be cut sort of rectangular, pressing it down flat. And sometimes I even tug at the edges a little bit to make it longer, a more elongated rectangle. Then I roll it up from the long edge and pinch it down. And then I roll with my hands. Uh, when you're rolling a strand, you're pressing down, using combination of pressing weight down on the table against the strand and also pulling the dough outward. So you're constantly putting your hands back in the middle and rolling back and forth, moving your hands towards the edge, back to the middle again, pushing towards the edge. And you don't want to push the dough farther than it wants to go. Just let it rest. You can either, you can let them sit on your table on a, and then cover them with plastic while they're resting. And these pretzels are going to need about 
10 to 20 minutes to rest before we can roll them a second time. You might be tempted to rush it at this point. Skip the resting and just get on with shaping the pretzels. Don't. You'll just get frustrated. The dough rope that you're rolling out simply won't stretch to the length that you need it to unless it has time to relax. So walk away. Go clean up the kitchen. Or better yet, relax yourself for 20 minutes. Then you can finish shaping the pretzels, like Eric is about to do. And now I'm going to take them back off of the tray and try to stretch them out to three, three and a half feet long and twist them. I'm just going to roll them. And I'm going to avoid thinning out the middle too much because that's the belly of the pretzel. If you want to be very artistic about it, you want to leave a little knob of dough at the end. So it's got this fat belly in the middle and then these skinny arms that taper out to the end and then a little bit of a knob right there. And then the way the Germans do it is they pick up the ends and they toss the pretzel and let it fall back down. And towards the ends of the arms you've made, or the, the part where the arms cross, and, and what the twist needs to be where they cross once and then cross back so that each arm goes back to its side of the dough. And then you can sort of stick it up there on the ends. And to rest the pretzels, I suggest a board or a sheet pan with a cloth over the top of it so that the pretzels don't get stuck. And we'll put that in the fridge to let them firm up because these are they're definitely floppy. And with that butter in the dough, they'll get nice and firm and hard when they go in the fridge. That's right. He's letting them rest again. This time, get your lye bath ready and set up your workstation for dipping the set pretzels and laying them out on a baking sheet. So we are going to dip the pretzels in lye, put salt on them, and score them with a razor blade. And as with deep frying, you want to have everything ready when you're about to handle lye. So you're definitely wearing gloves for the food grade. If I had cuts on my hands, I would put two pairs of gloves because sometimes the gloves rip and it... It will, burn, it will burn right away if you have a cut. The way we do it on a large scale is we have a, a rectangular tub and a couple of screens and we rest the pretzels on one screen and then weigh them down with another screen to get them to stay submerged. At home, I would, just, I would mix as little lye as you need so you don't have to waste it and then just hold it down with your gloved hand under the liquid for about five seconds. Pretzels that have been dipped in lye you have to use a silicone-based parchment. You can't use any other material. Well, in particular, you can't use something called Quillon because it will bond to the pretzels, which, which is what cheaper parchments usually are made of. All right, so I've dipped the pretzels. I have a little minute to reshape them on the tray before they get kind of stuck. Pretzel salt, which is some kind of salt that's been like... Uh, it's not coarse pieces because those are hard. It's some kind of thing that's been like pressed together into little, little balls of salt. And I'm gonna sprinkle the pretzels, especially the bellies. And we're gonna score them with a sharp blade right along the belly. And that's going to give the pretzel a place to expand that will look pretty. Typically, we would be baking pretzels after the bread's finish. And so the oven will be in the 500s. And they will take 
about eight to 12 minutes at that kind of temperature. If you recall from when Muddy Fork has been on Earth Eats before, they do all the baking in a large scale wood-fired brick oven that they heat to very high temperatures each week to bake their bread, croissants, and other goodies. As the oven cools, they bake items that require lower temperatures, like pretzels. In your home oven, 500 might be the highest it goes. If so, just start checking them at around eight minutes. You want them to be fully browned and caramelized on the outside and not doughy in the center. Once they're out of the oven, let them rest again, ever so briefly, to cool slightly. But you know, soft pretzels are best hot and fresh from the oven. A, a German baker would tell you that a pretzel should be fat in the belly, which is also where we scored it, and soft in that part, with skinny arms and crunchy in the arms, so you get a range of textures in your pretzel. And uh, you can eat it hot, like we're going to. Another way that they're eaten in southern Germany is you can slice open the pretzel from uh, the shoulder, from one shoulder to the other shoulder, and put cold butter on it. It's called a, it's called a Butterbrezel. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's try it. Do I try the fat part or the skinny part? And you can taste that signature pretzel flavor in the skin, yep. which is that reaction of the dough with the lye. Yeah, it has such a crisp but thin outside. Yes, that's right. That's another feature of the lye. And then very soft in the middle. And the whole thing is just rich with flavor. It's almost buttery. Yes, and it has a little butter in it. That's true. Just the right amount of salt as well. <laughs> <laughs> We like to make um, some of our plain croissants into pretzel croissants by dipping them in lye and salting them. And the, that savory flavor of the, the pretzel flavor and the salt really goes well with the butter. It makes it taste extra buttery. Yeah. I know. You're craving pretzels now. That's very nice. Thank you. Well, I, I know I am. We have a link to Muddy Fork Bakery's website at eartheats.org. If you want to try your hand at making pretzels at home, with or without the lye, we have the complete recipe on our website, eartheats.org. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knobloch, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Michelle Porter, Eric Shedler, David Gann, Rocky Burton, and everyone at Rocky and Wren's Dinner. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.